So I'm going to invite you, if you would, to grab your message notes out of your program. And if you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. And as you look at this, uh, we're going to talk today about another step in engagement. Uh, Last week, Fritz Moga did an amazing job of setting the series up uh, on where we're going and why we're doing this series. The whole idea is this. uh, When we come to seasonal spots in our lives... Uh, that it's a good idea to do some reflection and do some evaluation, and especially spiritually. And as we look at our lives spiritually, we say, well, you know what? I'm not quite where I want to be. And if you read my email blast the last two weeks, especially this week, uh, I talked about that for my, my life. And where I looked at it, I'm not quite where I want to be, but I know there's some steps I can take. But it really just comes down to whether I'm willing to engage or not. Am I willing to personally engage? To be where God wants me to be. And so I was just honest in my email blast that there have been times this past year that I wasn't engaging like I knew that God had called me to. And so therefore, when I got to the end of 2014, I wasn't where I could have been. And I've just decided that 2015 is not going to be like that and that I'm going to engage more fully. And so this series and the idea here is that if you want to grow spiritually, you must engage yourself. And we're going to look at several ways, and today we're going to look at engaging in prayer. And what I'm going to give you today is a prayer that what I'm going to do is ask you to be willing to pray with me, our staff, our pastors, and our church for the coming year, entire year. We've done this for the last four years. Last year, we had a prayer that was from Ephesians chapter 3. This year, Ephesians chapter 1, but we're going to give a lot more intensity to it this year and a lot more focus to help us to stay engaged uh, throughout the year. I'm going to talk to you more about what that means in just a little bit, but today what I want to do is I just want to kind of lay the prayer out and give you some information about it so that when you pray, then Holy Spirit has more material to work with, okay, because you've got more information in your head and in your heart as we go through this as well. Last week, Fritz gave us a definition of engage. And the definition was to participate or become involved in, to do or take part in something, to give yourself fully to something. And today we're talking about being engaged in prayer. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, be constant in prayer. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says that you should pray always and pray without ceasing. Now, his exhortation there is that you and I would engage in prayer always. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't pray always. Do you? No, we don't. But what he's saying is that you would be constant in your desires to pray and constant in your practices of learning to pray. What that means is, and I found this definition of being constant, it means to be persistent, stick with it, to be devoted to it, to make it a regular, habitual, recurring, disciplined part of your life. And that's what he wants us to do when it comes to this whole idea of prayer. Now, even though we know prayer is important, at the same time, personal experience for most of us tells us that prayer is one of those activities that we feel inadequate at. We're just not sure how sometimes, and uh, we're, you know, we feel like we get stuck in this whole idea of prayer, and so we feel inadequate. So one of the best ways that we can move beyond feeling inadequate at prayer is to look at prayer models. You think about it. Jesus' disciples came to him, and they'd been seeing the intimacy that Jesus had with his father and the prayers that he prayed. And he said to them, 
they said to him, would you teach us how to pray? And then he did, and he gave them a model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. Well, the Apostle Paul does a similar thing for us. He prays this prayer. He writes it out in Ephesians chapter 1. And this prayer, when we look at it, it can become our model prayer. And what I'm going to ask, as I said earlier, is for that we would be willing to make a commitment to pray this prayer that you would pray with me in 2015 as we go through it. So he begins, let's just kind of give you some context. He begins Ephesians 1, uh, and I got so wrapped up in Ephesians 1 this week. I, I, Catherine, you're over here somewhere. I texted Fritz this week, and, and I said, oh, this is so, how am I ever going to do this? There's just so much in this, it's so rich. And so I was going through Ephesians chapter 1. The verses I'm not going to get to today, 3 through 14, he talks about the riches that we have in Christ. He says that we are chosen. He says that we are redeemed, that we're forgiven, that we have been adopted as sons and daughters, that we're no longer untethered out on our own island, eternally separated from God. But he's literally brought us into his household as brothers and sisters. And as a son or daughter, Ephesians 1.11 says that we are heirs. We have inheritance in him. We're eternally his. And then he says that we're eternally sealed and secured in him. So that's all like, like the first 14 verses, and then we're going to get to chapter, uh, verse 15 now, and he talks about praying. He's just so moved by what he's seeing, so moved by what God has done, that he just bursts out in prayer, bursts out in worship. And that's what we're going to look at today, is his worship and his prayer. Let's just begin with verse 15. He says this, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Would you circle that word constantly there for me? Circle the word constantly. That's what we're talking about. It's a constant prayer. Now, do you think that Paul only prayed for these people constantly? That he's the only people he prayed for? No. But he's saying is, I've made it a habitual habit to do this. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse 18a. I want to include this because it's really the key to this prayer. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. So two things that he says right up front in reference to the Ephesians that I think are true of many of us as well. First, he says this. He says, I have heard of your faith. I've heard of the fact that you have placed your faith in the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that you're believing God, and that you're acting out of a faith-based life. So I've heard about your faith. In fact, Paul was talking about having heard about it, and he's not there. So the stories were being told, circulated, of the faith of these people in Ephesus. So it's a region in Ephesus that he's talking about. So he's heard of their faith. And secondly, what he's heard about, he says, you don't just have faith. You act out your faith, and you do it through love. He says, I've heard about your love. I've heard about the love that you have for each other. And then, as we would say, Jesus said that you would also love your neighbor and you would love everyone. And so he says, I've heard about the fact that you have deep faith and you have a deep love and it's the distinguishing marker. And as he says that, and I was reading that this week, and when I was, you know, texted Fritz, what I was really meaning is, I think that's our church. Now, I, I do agree that we can have some steps to take and some places we still need to go and some places where we can shore up the ship a little bit, but that's us. That's you. You're a people of deep faith. 
Your people have said yes to Jesus. Your people have said, I want the best of what God wants for me and my life, and I'm going to do it for him and his kingdom. So your people of faith and your people of love. When we look at the stage right here, like I said, this was not everyone who's involved in safe families. And what I did this week is I'm writing a letter to you that's going to go in your giving statements that you're going to get here in a week. And as I did that, I thought, well, this year what I'm going to do is I'm just going to talk about all the ways that you're giving influenced people. And it's just list of numbers of people. Numbers of people, and every number is a person that we have been able to show the love of Christ to in this year. And so I just want to celebrate the fact that I think that what God, what Paul was writing, that we can say could be true of us as well. And I'll just say it this way. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you. I'm proud that you keep taking steps. You keep letting us push you and receive those, you know, risky kind of things that come out that you're going to step out in faith and that you continue to show love and that's what our church is known for so it's in that last line though that i included that paul really gives us the focus of the prayer he says that having the eyes of your heart enlightened he's praying and this is what the prayer is mostly about is that we would be able to see things from god's perspective And that as we learn to see things from God's perspective, that we would respond accordingly. So if you wanted to give just a kind of a broad title for our prayer for 2015, it's a prayer for divine enlightenment. Last year's prayer was a prayer for divine enablement. And this year's is divine enlightenment, that we would be enlightened to who he is. In fact, if you want to write this down and just a clear thing, the purpose of prayer is that we would know god better know god better that's the purpose of prayer the purpose of this prayer is that you and i would get to a place where we know god better so wherever you are that's all of us wherever you are today that at the end of this year as we go through this that when we get to the end you would be able to say i know god better because i engaged with him And I prayed this prayer together because God, here's the deal, God reveals himself to us as we pray. And as he reveals himself to us, we get to know him better as we spend time with him. We pray better when we know him better because prayer is all about relationship. Now, as we go through these verses today, I just want you to keep in mind that this is, this is just, it kind of blew me away, actually, because the church in Ephesus, uh, these folks, as they came to know Jesus, they were ostracized, they were ridiculed, some of them lost their families, some of them lost their homes, they lost their businesses, they lost their income, they lost their ability to care for their family. Uh, all kinds of things happened to them. Not only that, but they're living in you know, a time when there's all kinds of political oppression and that there's disease and that there are circumstances in their lives that are out of control, that aren't in their favor. And what I found fascinating about this is that in Paul's prayer, he does not pray for their circumstances to change. He doesn't pray that. He doesn't pray for their health. He doesn't pray for their wealth. He doesn't pray for their safety. He doesn't pray about their political or social oppression. What he prays is that they will know God better and better. Because he knows that no matter how bad their circumstances might be, the key to facing these circumstances is intimacy with God. It's knowing God better. 
So for Paul and the people in the region of Ephesus, he was talking about the fact that you would know God better. And that's our desire as well. So I'm going to ask for three things today. I'm going to give it to you right now. Three things. I'm going to ask you to be willing to pray this prayer daily. And I'm going to give you some ways that we're going to do that all at the end. Secondly, uh, for five days, Monday through Friday, and you're going to see there are five prayers. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer on Saturday, the sixth day, for another church or Christ-based ministry in our area. And what I'm going to do is every week now in my email blast, I'm going to give you the church of the week or the Christ-based ministry that we're going to pray for. So on Saturday, you're going to be praying this prayer for out in our community for others. And then what we're going to do is we're going to ask you to pray um, for our church as well. And so this prayer cons- you know, will be for many different groups as we go through it. So, okay, so five prayers. Let's just look at them. First, help us to know your wisdom. Help us to know your wisdom. I'm not leaving. I've had the flu all week, and so I'm definitely not getting through this talk without this. Ephesians 1, 17b. He says that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, just to kind of make it clear, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the prayer, I'm going to give you the verse, and I'm going to kind of unpack it a little bit. I don't have time to unpack the whole thing. In fact, we could do a whole series just on this prayer. I'm going to unpack it a little bit so that when you're praying this prayer, God, as I said earlier, can take what you've heard today and he can expound it through the Holy Spirit in your heart and mind. So when you say wisdom, what you need to know is we're not praying for more information. I mean, we have enough information. Some of you have so much information that you're packed to the top of your brain with information. He's saying, no, I'm not praying that you have more information. I'm praying that you have more wisdom and knowledge. And what he means by that, that wisdom means insight into the true nature of things. So I now have an insight into how things work. And that would be in the spiritual realm, in the physical realm, in all the realms that we live in, that we have insight into how things work. And so in this context, it's divine insight. So I'm having what God thinks about things. That's wisdom. How does God view this? And that word revelation that's in that verse, it's the communication of the knowledge of God to our inner being. So now I've got insight about how God works, and then I take that insight, and then God applies it inside of me, and now I understand a little bit more about God to my inner heart or my soul. So what happens is the Holy Spirit teaches us we have information okay so i'm not saying i'm not really saying anything against information but i'm saying this is more than information teaches us through information we learn about god insights we have about him and then he takes that and as we walk with god he teaches us how to apply it does that make sense so as we walk with him we learn how to apply what we're learning it's both information about god that results with intimacy with god as i walk it out so I was talking to a friend about this this week, and just really trying to you know, get to the bottom of what this, really, this whole passage was about. We were having coffee, and as we were talking about this, he, he shared with me that you know, many people see the Bible as the end. So you know, if I can just know the Bible, that's the end. Okay, So if I have all this knowledge and information about the Bible, then that's all I needed to do. And he said, no, the Bible is not the end. The Bible is a signpost. 
So there's a picture of a signpost here. So when you have a signpost, the destination, the signpost is not the destination, right? The signpost is showing you to the way, the way to the destination. But he says what happens is many people see the Bible as the end, and it becomes the destination, but it's not the destination. It's the signpost. It's showing us the journey, showing us where to go and how to be with God. And so what we're saying when we pray for wisdom is that, God, show me, show me who you are. Help me to understand it internally, apply it, Holy Spirit, but it's going to be worked out on the journey. It's going to be a practical tool that I use on the journey with him. And as I walk with him, then I'm actually able to know him better, know him better. So what I want to ask right now is just there's a question at the end of every one of these. And once again, those questions are there just to help you in your meditation. So you're going to get a card that's going to give you the prayer. Then you're going to have your notes and you can have these both together. But the question is, how actively am I pursuing God? Not the signpost. Now, I can't get to God apart from the signpost, right? But I get to the signpost, and then I go to God and where he is. So how actively am I pursuing God? Second is this. Help us to know your hope. Help us to know your hope. Go back to that verse from 18. And he says that having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, we talk about hope a lot around here. And I love the concept and the you know, aspect of hope. I don't think we can talk about it too much. But what we have to realize is, is that there's a distinction between biblical hope and cultural hope. There's a distinction between the two. To our culture, hope means uncertain desire. So to our culture, when they say hope, it's basically the idea is a maybe. So... Someone might say, I hope the Sacramento Kings can get into the playoffs this year. Okay? Someone might say, I hope that the 49ers can get a good coach, right? But that's still uncertain because there's a lot of things to play. Someone say, I hope the stock market, stock market continues its bull run. Maybe, maybe not. So it's uncertain. But biblical hope is certain. So here's a definition of biblical hope. I'm going to ask you to write it down, even though it's not going to be on the screen. You're just going to have to work hard right now, okay? Pretend you're in school. Here we go. Definition of biblical hope. A life-shaping certainty, life-shaping certainty that hasn't happened yet, but you know is going to happen. A life-shaping certainty that hasn't happened yet, but you know is going to happen. That is biblical hope. See, biblical hope is never a maybe. It's 100% assurance in what is not realized yet. Because biblical hope is based upon the character of the God of the universe. That's why verses 3 through 14 are so important to be able to understand this prayer. The God of the universe. And since he's good and he promises to work out all things for our good. And since he has also promised that he has plans for us that are not for calamity, but for disaster. Then I trust that when God makes a promise, he's going to keep it. And that is biblical hope. Our hope is grounded in who God is. He's a promise maker and he's a promise Keeper. 
So you can ask yourself when you get to praying this, in what am I placing my hope? Am I placing my hope on things that are uncertain? And many of us do this. I do this so many times. I'm play- and how do you know? Because you end up disappointed. And you end up anxious because it's uncertain. The only thing that's certain in life are the promises of God and what he said. So I have to know. Once again, that's what the signpost does. It gives us the promises of God so that we can live in and for them. Okay, third prayer is this. Help us to know your blessings. Help us to know your blessings. In verse 18b says, I pray that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, when we talk about the word inheritance there, uh, that we have to understand what is an inheritance. And so an inheritance is something that you have that you give to someone else. And so many people, they you know, uh, go through life and they're building an estate And then at the end of life, they hope to pass that estate on to their children. And so that is, the state is the inheritance. And so when they pass that on, they pass it on to their child. A parent passes on to a child. A grandparent passes on to a grandchild, maybe. An aunt passes on to a niece. And it's passed on to someone, not on the basis of what they've done, but on relationship, on who they are. So you're not going to, you know, pass it on to someone that you don't know, so it's at somebody you do know, but you're also not most times, okay, some of you may you know, get into a place where you have to draw boundaries with those who are going to inherit your uh, estate, but most of the time you pass it on to someone that is in your family, and it's based on relationship. Now, I keep telling my kids that their inheritance will be to take care of me when I'm old, <laughs> okay? So their inheritance is me, <laughs> so I keep telling them. And uh, they don't really like that very much, uh, like that idea. And they, so, they, see, the good news though is that the God who created heaven and earth, He owns everything, and He's promised us that in Christ that we will receive an inheritance. And then, you know, First Peter says that He's going to save that inheritance. Not, you know, moth and uh, and rust cannot destroy it, and that it will be held secure for us on that day when we get. To heaven, so there is a key, there's a place and there's a time when each one of us is going to receive an inheritance because we are an adopted son or daughter of God. You know that to be true. When you adopt a child, that child comes into your family and they get the full rights of every other sibling that they might have in the family, and they get to inherit that. But I mean, that's that's one aspect of inheritance, okay? But most scholars actually don't believe that's what Paul's talking about here. He's already talked in verse 11 about the inheritance that we will receive. But most scholars, and I did a lot of research about this this week, most scholars believe that when what Paul is talking about here is he's saying that, yes, we will receive an inheritance, and yes, we are his inheritance. We are his inheritance. See, Jesus paid the price and secured us as part of God's family, and because of that, this changes everything. It speaks right to the heart of our identity and who you are in Christ. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, you are the inheritance of God in Christ. That is your value. 
the inheritance of God in Christ. We are his, as in, we are his inheritance as much as he is our inheritance. Here's the, just kind of wrap your brain around this with just for a minute. God valued us so much that Jesus gave his life so that you could become the inheritance of the Father. You could become God's prize. We are God's reward for Christ's suffering. And the greatest inheritance for God is you. And when you can wrap your brain around that, it will solve your identity issues when you know how valued you are to God. So the question you would ask here is, do I believe how valuable I am? Do I believe it? How valuable I am to God, and that'll help me to understand and be more intimate with him. Next, help us to know your power. Fourth prayer, help us to know your power. Now he goes on, and Paul just gets carried away. And and you gotta know that 15 through 23 was one run-on sentence, okay? 3 through 14 is one run-on sentence, and then 15 through 23 is just flat out. He's just overflowing. He can't stop, and um, he writes like I do. Here we go. That you may know what is the—I'm going to have you circle four words here because not only that, but he wants us to really get it about power. So that you may know what is the immeasurable immeasurable greatness. If you don't circle these two words, that's great. They're not the two I'm going to draw to, but immeasurable, beyond measurement— greatness, power, and it goes, of his power. So circle word power. And and, uh, those of you who have studied this before know that that word power is the Greek word dunamis, when we get the word dynamite from. So he's talking about something that's explosive. So you mean this explosive power toward us who believe according to the working. Circle the word working. There's another word that talks about power here, and it's the operative power or divine energy. So as this explosive power to change things, now this is the operative power that causes things to run and function daily or you know regularly. And um, of his great might, that's the third word, might. And this is his ultimate power or his dominion. So because he's God, he has all power. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power. That's the fourth word, power. And this means because he's God, he's been endowed with all power, and that power is available to us. It goes on, it says, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Paul's just saying, I just want you to have your eyes opened to the power that's available to you immeasurable greatness of the power that's available to you. You're not impotent. How many of you have seen Unbroken yet? You've seen the movie Unbroken. Several people have seen that. Um, great. It's a good movie. The book is a great book. Okay, so if you've not read, if you've not read the book yet, highly recommend it, and I'm going to spoil it right now for you. Okay. So what the movie leaves out is this faith journey, and the faith journey is really the book to me. And uh, the, all the rest is just like so depressing and oppressing and the suffering he went through. But then there's a moment when he comes back to the U.S. after he's been released. The book, the movie ends when he gets released from the prison camp, and that uh, he becomes an alcoholic because of all that he's gone through. 
and his life's falling apart, his marriage is falling apart in every way, and his wife convinces him to go to a Billy Graham crusade with her. And so they go the first night, and he runs out at the end, and the Holy Spirit's working, goes the second night, goes back again, and as he's there the second night, God reminds him of a prayer he prayed on the raft in the ocean. You do get to see that prayer when you're in the movie. And and then he says yes to Jesus Christ. And what he did is he walked home from that crusade. He went into his house and he grabbed every bottle of booze in his house, opened the caps, and poured it all down the drain. And from that moment on, he knew complete freedom. Now, did he do that on his own? No, there's absolutely no way he did that on his own. He did it because he had a measurable great power inside now from Holy Spirit who had planted in him. And that's what we have available. And we are not impotent. And God wants to work in you in the same way he worked in the life of Louis Zamperini. To set you free. So you want to ask, do I realize how much power is available to me? Do I realize how much power and am I yielding myself to that power? Okay, and then the fifth, last prayer is this. Help us to know your purpose. Help us to know your purpose. See, I already told my kids about the spoiler thing, and, and they read the book, and they were just as moved. So I think you can still read it and get there. So just I would highly recommend it. In fact, I had no idea of the story at all when I read the book. And when I got to the moment when he said yes to Jesus Christ, I stopped and bawled. Because I just... you. It, Oh, you're so low. And then Jesus pops in, and it just changed everything. It was just amazing, amazing book. And we got lots of them in our bookstore if you want to check one out. Okay, so then he says, Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, that you may know, here's his prayer, that you may know that God, so know, once again, know is all the way through. Every one of these is about knowing, knowing inside, internally, knowing that God has put all things under the authority of Christ, And made his head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. So what is God's purpose? According to this, God's purpose is that all things submit to the authority in the name of Jesus Christ. That's his purpose. And his purpose is that a church will be formed that is entrusted with gifts that are to be used to make his church the greatest force on earth. His church is made full and will be made complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself is what he says here. So here's the deal. If God's purpose is that the church, church, will be his tool in this world that is designed to draw people to his son, to acknowledge Jesus Christ, if that's his purpose, then the number one thing I can give my life to is linking arms with God and his people to build his church. That's the number one thing I can give my life to. 
So you have all the organizations, you think about this, that God could have chosen to turn the world upside down and transform people into new creations. He could have picked anything. He could have picked the banking industry. He could have picked business. He could have picked Wall Street to transform the world. God could have picked a nation to transform the world. God have chosen a, could have chosen a government to transform the world. He could have chosen education to change the world. He could have chosen social justice as the way to change the world. He could have picked the United Way, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, or any other social organization, but he didn't. He picked the church. He picked the church. And that means he picked you and me because we are part of his church. And as far as it's up to me, God willing and God empowering, I am going to give my life to fulfilling God's purpose of building his church. See, God wants us to become a church that has full knowledge of him and that is formed out of his wisdom and formed as we Follow him on the journey, on the trail together, always looking to the signpost, but going where the signpost directs in the journey. God wants us to be a church that has an unwavering hope that's based on what he has done. Not on what we can do or not on what we've done, but what he has done and what he can do. He wants us to be a church that owns its value before a holy God that we are his inheritance and that we are bringing other people into the place where they can know him and that they become his inheritance too when they say yes to Jesus Christ. He wants it to be a church that's full of people that are being transformed into the image of Jesus because we are letting his power, we're being empowered and it's flowing through us and we are not impotent. And he wants us to be a church and this is where I think we get so confused. He wants us to be a church that knows its purpose and won't be distracted by any lesser purpose than seeing our world bow at the feet of Jesus Christ. Any other purpose. So we want to ask ourselves as we're praying this, because this is a big prayer, you guys. How am I engaged in God's purposes. And if his purpose was to build a church, then your question is, how am I involved in God's church? What am I doing? Because as I engage with him, he changes me. And as he changes me, he changed the world. Okay, let's pray together. Father, I, I did, I did, my prayer is that we will engage. That's all I can pray right now. I know, though, that there are people in the room who have never said yes to Jesus. And that I want to give them a chance to. That they can know what we've talked about to be true for them today. So if you've never said yes to Jesus, would you just say today, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I, 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 I know that I have sinned. I declare today that you are God and that you died on a cross to pay my debt so that I could be free, so that I could be adopted as a son or daughter of the Most High God. And Jesus, I pray now 
that you would help me to be someone who's engaged in your holy purposes on this earth. And Father, I pray for all of us today that we would just allow this message to soak and sink, to be implanted, that we would choose today to say we will engage with you in praying for the next year. And I can't imagine what you're going to do in this church as we know you better. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.